Welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about The Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Newman. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. This episode is brought to you by the Thinking Fellows Podcast. I'll tell you more about that in just a few minutes. Our guest is Juan R. Velez, a Catholic priest of the Prelature of Opus Dei. He's a theologian and a former medical doctor, as well as the author of Passion for Truth, The Life of John Henry Newman and Holiness in a Secular Age, The Witness of Cardinal Newman. His latest book is A Guide to John Henry Newman, His Life and Thought, an edited volume for Catholic University of America Press, and he is the editor of the website Cardinal John Henry Newman.com. He joins us by Zoom as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station WRFH in Michigan. Father Juan, welcome to the Great Books Podcast. John, thank you. I'm happy to be with you on your program. Why is Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Newman a great book? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you, that you call it that way, and, and, that, and that's really what it is. It's one of the uh, the most important uh, intellectual and spiritual biographies of, of the 19th century and probably figures among those of all time, and in particular of English men of letters. There, there are famous biographies like St. Augustine's or St. Teresa of Avila in the 16th century. Uh, other people later in the, in the 17th century start writing biographies. And they're, they're, But Numas is particularly well-known, and it's beautifully written, it has a great depth of self-analysis and and also of historical context. It really is both a work of uh, introspection and a work of also of the religious context of his period and a work of, of literary excellence. It is, it is really a, a marvelous uh, book, a, a great book, as, as you put it. We're going to talk about all that, what this book says, why John Henry Newman felt a need to say it, who he was, and also why this book is of special interest for Catholics, but why it's not just for Catholics. And Father Juan, I want to start with the title. The book is in English. When you read it, it's in English, but the title is in Latin, which makes it kind of fancy, I suppose. But first, though, what does it mean? What does the Latin title mean in English, and why did he want to use Latin? Well, it is a fancy title, and, and he, he wrote for an educated public, and so he, he used a, a Latin. And the word means defense, rather than the English translation, which we often think of as apology, an excuse for something you've done. No, it's a defense of, of an idea, and the title resonates with a second century book by St. Justin, who wrote an apologia to the emperor on behalf of Christians. So it's a defense about what Christians were doing. And, and Newman is writing a defense about his life and about and Catholics, uh, Catholic teaching and Catholic priests. So it means a defense for his life or oh, of his life. Right, right. Yeah, it, so, right. Specifically, it's, so apologia, it's a defense, and then pro vita for his life, as, as you're saying, although it includes also a defense of, of the teaching of the Catholic, uh, Roman, Roman Catholic Church. And let's jump in now to this question about it's a work by a Catholic, often assumed for Catholics, but this book just isn't for Catholics. It has a wider appeal, doesn't it? Right. It can be read in different ways, and 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 one is uh, his life and what what why Newman thought and what the way he did and the way his life evolved. 
it can also be read as far as uh, what Catholicism teaches about certain things or why Catholicism is, uh, their, its claims are, are valid. And then it can also be read, and I think it's very important, it can be read as, as something that appeals to all Christians, not only Christians, particularly because of its a defense of personal integrity and truthfulness. In particular in religious matters, and, it, and we could say it's a defense of religious freedom, and, and also the consequent respect for people's religious beliefs. Newman is, is asking there in his book that he be respected for his beliefs and that Catholics in England of 19th century, which was a period where Catholics were only beginning again to be able to run in politic, public office or, or, or study at Oxford uh, or, or have the right to vote. Uh, he's, he's asking for respect and of their religious views and uh, but but it appeals to it, it speaks to respect to all people for their religious views uh, and the person's rights of conscience. So in this sense, it has it has a wide appeal. It's often not read this way, this book, but it really it really does does have this important contribution for uh, an educated reader. John Henry Newman was born in 1801, died in 1890. So this as as you say, a 19th century life. Why did he feel a need to write a defense of his life? And I'll, I'll, I'll extend the question by reading an early sentence from the book, which is this, quote, I am happy in having the opportunity of reading the worst that can be said of me by a writer who has taken pains with his work and is well satisfied with it, unquote. Why is he, what, why is he defending himself? What is he defending himself against? He was known in Oxford, so... At some point when he decides to, he was Anglican, then when he becomes Catholic, he feels like he ha- he has to explain w- why he's taking that step, partly because people are saying mistaken things about him. Uh, for example, some were saying that he was Catholic all along and that he's misleading Anglicans. And also because uh, some people, they just don't understand why, he, why he's doing that. They think that he's betraying the Anglicans. So he, he feels like he has to defend his position, but he also has to defend uh, Catholics uh, for their claims. And he, he's writing this book in 1864, and he had become Roman Catholic in 1845, so almost 20 years after becoming Catholic. Uh, so he was also speaking on behalf of Catholics who were, going to your question, who were often misunderstood in, in England. I mean, they were because, partly because of what... Um, what comes up later in, uh, when he writes the letter to the Duke of Norfolk to uh, address to Gladstone, who was the prime minister, that the English thought that if a Catholic, uh, someone was Catholic, he had an allegiance to the Pope, and so he he had a, a, a false allegiance to England, or, or he was a, a threat to England because the Pope would dictate politics to him if he was an English Catholic. That's, that's what many people believed. So he converted to Roman Catholicism, as an adult, born and raised Anglican, very quickly give us a definition of Anglican. What does it mean to say somebody is an Anglican? Well, the, the Ang- Anglicans are, are, are Christians who um, receive the, the, the teachings of the apostles and transmitted through the bishops, and who who had a religious uh, liturgical practices and and uh, traditions of, of of saints' days and. Uh, Traditions of uh, and teaching of moral teaching, the Christian moral teaching, which is uh, similar to the, the moral teaching of, of most Christians, 
and uh, who but the church the Anglican Church per se uh, began with the separation of of a certain number of, of Christians in England after with Henry VIII they separated from uh, obedience to Rome in in doctrinal and uh, ecclesiastical matters at the beginning of the of the 16th century now th those Anglicans some remained more closely with the Catholic traditions and others uh, adopted more Calvinistic uh, doctrines and uh, and practices and religious practices. And among the Anglicans, the well, there were some were called later would be called Anglo-Catholics later on. Others would be would were Anglicans that were more similar to to Protestant Calvinists. That's in a nutshell. It's hard to describe, but <laughs> to describe what Anglicans are. But basically, Christians who at some point. Uh, began to have their their the the church the Anglican Church is uh, is uh, governed by bishops and ultimately by the King of England. Although although in, in in everyday life it's through the bishops, the English bishops. So he grows up as an Anglican. He talks about in the Apologia his delight in reading the Bible, the importance of the church fathers to him. How did these early influences shape him as a Christian? Yes, and this is something that's not underlined enough, and, and some scholars now are, are saying that it should be, and rightly so, that the, the, the very first years of Numa's life, let, let's say the very first 30 years, they were informed by this uh, love for the Bible that Protestants and then Anglicans have. Uh, Anglicans don't often consider themselves as Protestants, but that so that he was informed, though, however, by this love for the scriptures of 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 the Anglican Church, and uh, which is shared by Protestants, and uh, and also just the, uh, the, uh, the the way that Christians carry their life, they they try to live a moral life to uh, of uh, practicing the faith. So th this was this was very much in in his life, and then he had early early uh, Anglican uh, teachers. Who were influential for him, and one was Richard Watley, and uh, another was uh, Hawkins, uh, the provost of Oriel College, and before that, other people uh, who 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 really taught him about uh, uh, about the, the truths of the Bible and the, and, the, and the Christian life, and that that remained with him throughout his life. He he changed, so he ad, ad, adopted some new beliefs and and uh, such as. The belief in the transubstantiation uh, about the Holy Eucharist and, and and belief in the authority of the Pope, but so many many other doctrines he kept in common with with the Anglicans and and practices also. He was a part of something called the Oxford Movement in the 1830s into the 1840s. What was the Oxford Movement? Well. Studying at, at Oriel College, he graduated from Trinity College in Oxford, and later became uh, won a, a professorship, an assistant professorship, so to speak, at Oriel College. He was called being a tutor, and there, being at Oriel College, he he had other other friends. One was Harold Froude, with whom he he was concerned about how the uh, the Church of England or the Anglican Church, the Church of England, was being overly influenced by by the government, the English government, uh, the parliament and the king, or in that case the queen, Queen Victoria, in such a way that the there was a kind of a meddling or control by of the church by the government. 
And that had implications for what's called ecclesiastical discipline, the, the way the, the government of the church. It had influence on doctrinal and spiritual matters. And they were very concerned about this, um, and other people, so this is John Keeble, who wrote a famous book called The Christian Year. John Keeble, who remained an Anglican and is well known for this book, The Christian Year. And so they wanted a spiritual reform, a doctrinal reform, an ecclesiastical reform of the Church of England. And many many people joined them in trying to, to return to a more pure, uh, more vibrant uh, Anglicanism. And they did that through writing tracts for the times, pamphlets, which reached the number of 90, and through their sermons, and uh, and also trying to petition the government in, in certain cases for different things to ask for uh, the respect for some ecclesiastical position or, or other. In 1845, then, John Henry Newman converted from the Anglican Church to the Roman Catholic Church. Why did he do it, and why was it so controversial? What happened, and I don't have the facts with me, the numbers, but the English Parliament they began to include some non-Anglican members, and, and they were exerting, and, and not only them, but other Anglican members in the Parliament who weren't particularly religious, were exerting unjust influence on the Anglican Church, and particularly uh, the Anglican, there were some Episcopal sees in Ireland that the, Angli- the government suppressed for financial matters. And then uh, later on, they tried to appoint a bishop to establish a bishop in Jerusalem, which would be a joint Anglican-Lutheran bishop or, or Episcopal see in Jerusalem, kind of disregarding that there are differences, doctrinal differences and, and practices. So trying to kind of put things together, the government doing this for, for political reasons, to have an influence of England in, in, in Jerusalem. And then there was also the question of, Occasionally, doctrinal matters came up that needed to be decided. Uh, some, in particular, one one case of a priest who, who who was denied authority by his bishop, and basically the bishop, um, the, the question was decided by the government. It's called the Gorham case, and the, the priest won against the bishop who wanted to enforce what's called baptismal regeneration, the belief that that through baptism you begin a, a you have a, a principle principle of grace and you begin your spiritual life uh, with the help of grace and it's not just it's something more than uh, than just becoming a member of the church but you receive the grace in your life well the bishop who thought that the priest should believe that was denied this uh, denied this authority by the government uh, and so basically the the members of the oxford movement and, and newman in particular saw that this this could not be right that this interference with the government and that led him more and more to examining the religious claims of the Anglican Church. And after a lot of personal prayer, study, and soul-searching, uh, he particularly thinking about the authority of the Pope, whether the Pope had authority or not uh, over, over the Church, he, he chose to, to be admitted into the Roman Catholic Church. But this was a long process, and, and the Apologia talks about this process, but as we might come back to later on, the Apologia also can be read in a different way to understand the, 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 this importance of religious freedom and, and integrity. 
You're listening to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review, and I'd like to tell you about the Thinking Fellows Podcast. Speaking of great books, this year is the 100th anniversary of the highly influential book by J. Gresham Mackin called Christianity and Liberalism. This important book explores the relationship and conflict between classical Christian thought and liberal ideology. This week, the Thinking Fellows Podcast, part of the 1517 Podcast Network, discusses this classic work as part of a two-episode episode series, The Thinking Fellows will explore why Mackin's work remains relevant 100 years later and how these ideas affect our lives today. The Thinking Fellows will bring their signature fun and conversational approach to essential ideas in philosophy, history, and Christian theology. Whether you're a student of theology, philosophy, or history, or simply someone who loves great literature, you won't want to miss these episodes of the Thinking Fellows podcast. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts for an engaging and enlightening discussion every week. Okay, Father Juan, we've been talking about the biography of John Henry Newman, his uh, ideas, his changing ideas about uh, religion, and in fact, a lot of the apologia, the, the chapters are called the history of my religious opinions, and he walks through these. But you just mentioned an essential point. A lot of what he's doing here is defending a principle of freedom of conscience. Explain that. Why is that so important to him, and what is he saying in the apologia about freedom of conscience, religious freedom, and so on? Well, while he's explaining why his why he why he took the decisions he he took and why they're reasonable and why he's explaining what some of the positions of the Roman Catholic Church in a, in a way he's saying that each person needs to to take seriously their religious life and study their faith and each person um so there's the the, the need to search for the truth and and then and then to respect people where they where they are and what they believe, uh, and respect for the decisions of conscience. And many times we, we we don't do that. And frankly, reading Newman's life, it's it's wonderful to see his respect for people and the religious beliefs. In fact, and 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 also and then and then to study religious questions seriously. Some people would go to him often, actually, saying they wanted to become Roman Catholic, and he said, "Well, spend a few years thinking about this. Don't rush." study, pray. So that's on the, on the one hand. And on the other hand, people, his friends who remained Anglican and other people who came to him with different religious beliefs, he, he had respect for them. He didn't insult them or didn't, uh, he treated them, uh, he, he, he questioned some of their beliefs and he uh, shared their, his beliefs with them. But you see there a basic sense of respect for the conscience of others. And at the same time, the seriousness about searching for the truth. His his uh, his religious uh, change came about studying the history of, of, of Christian doctrine, and it ended up in a book called Development of Christian Doctrine. And his, his conclusion was that he, he needed to become Roman Catholic, but he respected those who thought differently. Now, he did come under a lot of criticism for the conversion. One of his critics was a guy called Charles Kingsley. Who is he and why is he so important to the Apologia? Well, he was an, a well-known uh, uh, university professor, and he was a, a, a Anglican clergyman. He was a novelist, but he was well-known. And so when he attacked Newman in a magazine for being someone who didn't care much for truth, and he said, and, and, and Catholic priests don't care much for truth, uh, 
that that Newman felt he had to respond. Uh, so basically, we we have to thank uh, Charles Kingsley that provoked Newman to to write in his book. M many of Newman's writings were in response to different things that would happen or events. So Kingsley, they they had an exchange of of conversations, and Newman said, "No, you need to retract this. You need to apologize." But basically, King, Kingsley didn't apologize, and he kept on insisting. And so then Newman wrote this the Apologia in about two months, writing 14 hours a day, 12 to 14 or 16 hours a day, looking over letters, getting letters from friends, letters that he had written to friends, getting them back to go over the materials and, and putting together this, this wonderful book that uh, it was a really a formidable response to, to Charles Kingsley about his own beliefs and the beliefs of Roman Catholics. We talk about this book as an autobiography. Is it better described as a kind of intellectual autobiography rather than a kind of cradle-to-grave story of my life? It's about how his thinking has changed over time. Right, yeah. It, it, it is peculiar in that sense. It, it is primarily that. It, the, the first few pages do talk about his early childhood, but but basically it's an intellectual biography. Uh, and um, it is... Uh, it is it is hard to read, although it has beautiful prose, and and if if one uh, if one reads it carefully, it uh, it there it gives a lot to think about, and it's very enriching. Newman wrote a lot of books, and a separate one he wrote is called "The Idea of a University" in 1852. I mentioned that because it was show number 85 in this podcast series. If listeners want to go and look it up. Tell us very quickly, Father Juan, what is that work and what makes it interesting? Well, John, I'm glad you had that on the podcast. It really is a, one of my favorite books. It's very beautiful, uh, the way it's written. And it speaks, as, as you know, about the real goal of university education, the formation of the mind. And there, there Newman talks about the value of learning for learning's sake, how it perfects the mind, uh, which, is, which is very much Aristotelic in his thinking there that uh, we need to perfect our, our faculties and we perfect the mind through university education. And there he talks about that a universal, university education uh, requires that there be all the different sciences and departments be included in a university and that the, and, and among them, uh, the natural theology and if you remove one of those departments, some other science tries to take the place un mistakenly of that science. So that for there to be a, a, a university, you really need to have respect for all the sciences. And there, there, there needs to be a, a kind of the, the whole, the whole over, overarching um, contribution of the sciences. And also how there is a hierarchy in the sciences where philosophy and theology help us to understand the others, the place of the other sciences and the relationships between them and the relationship of man with God and the world. That gives us a sense of the sweeping achievement of John Henry Newman, the sweeping intellectual achievement. And that comes across in your recent book, A Guide to John Henry Newman, His Life and Thought and Edited Volume, that runs more than 500 pages. But very quickly, what's in that book? Well, there's uh, contributions from, from 23 scholars, and the first part is his life as an oratorian, a priest of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri, as a philosopher, as a poet, uh, his, his 
his conversion to Catholicism. Uh, and the second part talks about his uh, idea of faith and reason, his, his ideas about development of Christian doctrine, his, his sermons, the, the, the important themes of his sermons. And, and so, so the first part is about his life. The second part are chapters on his thought. It's a book, I think, which will be beneficial for for students, and um, and also it's there as a some material for for professors who who wish to look at, at Newman. So that we're we're happy that came out, and that but recently, just a few months, at Catholic University of America. In 2019, Pope Francis canonized John Henry Newman, which means he is now Saint John Henry Newman. But tell us a little bit more about what canonization really means and why does Newman deserve it? Well, it's it's the recognizing that a man or a woman uh, has lived an exemplary Christian life, his life itself, and also that his teaching has a contribution to make to others. And uh, the saints, there are men and women who make mistakes, uh, but who know how to rectify, who, who show their love to God and neighbor in exemplary ways. And so Newman really fits that idea, even though he didn't think of himself as a saint. Um, and, and we can disagree with the views and actions of, of a saint, uh, some particular actions, but uh, saints are people we can admire, people who help us to be better, to live our Christian faith uh, in a more coherent manner, uh, with respect for others, with lo- and especially with, with love for God. So it's possible to have a critical study of a saint and engage intellectually and and occasionally criticize the saint even. Right, and so a saint uh, can have, make mistakes in historical, scientific uh, ideas, and uh, or a whole, a whole host of things is personal life, and, and, and it's fair to, to disagree. But, but, but saints are such that, that their life is such that we, despite those differences, we, we can admire them and we learn them, we learn from them. How did you discover John Henry Newman. I read a biography by the person who later, later was the director of my dis- doctoral dissertation, Father Jose Morales, in, in Spanish, which was called uh, John Henry Newman uh, biography. Uh, and then later on, I, I I read other biographies. There's one by Louis Bouillet, biography of Newman. Father Ian Kerr has an extensive, a long biography of Newman. There's a, another biography by Mar- Mariel Trevor, a woman who wrote a two-part biography. It's a, I like it a lot, um, Light in Winter and Pillar of the Cloud, but basically Mariel Trevor. So reading a biography of Newman, that's how I really was interested by his passion for truth, by his courage, by his sincerity, his integrity. Does the Apologia have a personal meaning for you? Uh, it, it, you know, I, I read it early on, and recently I read it again. Uh, I've read excerpts many times in between. It fills in everything. It, it kind of, the Apologia sums up Newman's thinking on, 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 on so many things. And, and so it is like a, so it resonates a lot with me. I've been studying Newman for close to 30 years, and I admire him greatly, um, as, as you can imagine, and I think some of those who are listening. So I think it's a, it's a, it's actually it's a, it's a difficult work, as I said, but it's a work that's very, it's very rich and, uh, and has uh, it grows on you, and that also allows you to, to put Newman in context and to, to see his ideas, the big picture of his ideas, 
um, I would say. And finally, what is the case for reading this book and really anything by John Henry Newman today in the 2020s? So much of what he did was of his time in the 19th century, but can he speak to us now in some special way? Oh, I'm glad you said that, John. Yeah, he, he, one reason to read him is because he was one of the great Englishmen of the 19th century, but, but I'm talking about really great Englishmen. But reading him today is valuable because he was ahead of his time. He was thinking of the problems that were there already between faith and reason, but they're problems of our time, and he was thinking of that. He was also thinking about uh, the, how development of doctrine, doctrine cha- uh, develops, and how can you be sure of its if it's authentic Christian doctrine or not, or if it's a corruption, which is an ongoing problem or, or problem or, or task, trying to decide uh, what doctrines are the doctrines taught by Jesus Christ and his apostles. He also uh, addresses this whole issue that we were talking about, about the university education, which is a, continues to be a, a, a big challenge, a big task of identifying what true education is, what it's all about. So those are three areas that are big areas that Newman speaks uh, wisely to our to to our civilization to our society. Father Juan Arvelez, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about the Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Newman. Thank you, John. This was wonderful. You've just listened to the Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to the Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website at haymiller.com and Twitter. My handle is at haymiller. Last of all, a special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the Great Books Podcast.